Thanks, Taylor. <clears throat> Happy Father's Day, everybody. Um, we are. My name's Norton. I'm one of the pastors here. In case you're joining us uh, for the first time, or somehow you found us online, or somebody told you to join us uh, this morning, we're kicking off um, a couple of weeks today where we're going to talk about a really important topic. And I want to begin uh, by simply sharing with you the gospel message. Um, if you're new to church or new to the Bible, or maybe you're coming back, um, the word gospel is a very religious or churchy sounding word, and it literally just means uh, good news. So uh, here is the good news this morning. The good news is that God is for us, that he wants to save us from our sin and free us from anything that keeps us from living fully in relationship with him, with our true selves, with each other, and with all of creation. And Jesus is at the center of how God does this. Now, um, modern Americans, uh, we tend to focus on two parts of this good news, uh, the part about God saving us from our sin and the part about him restoring us into a relationship with him, that God saves us from our sin so we can have a relationship with him. And those are important and essential parts of this good news. But there are two other parts of the good news that we tend to sometimes neglect. The first is that we miss the freeing part. We, we don't often use this language of freedom or liberation, even though it's all over the Bible, right? The Israelites, they weren't just saved from slavery. They were freed from slavery so that they could live new and free and liberated lives. And in fact, the very first sermon that Jesus preached is found in Luke chapter four. He shows up in a synagogue one day and he says, I have come to proclaim freedom for those who are imprisoned. I've come to set the oppressed free. So the gospel message is just as much about freedom and liberation as it is about salvation. In fact, those two things go hand in hand. And then the second thing that we sometimes neglect about this good news is that this salvation and this freedom is not just about our relationship with God. It's also about ourselves. It's about God freeing us from our false selves or our false identities. It's about God healing our relationship with creation, that somehow our relationship with the creation is broken and it needs to be made new. And it's about our relationship with one another. That Jesus didn't come to just save and free individuals so that they could then have a personal relationship with him. He came to create a new community of people, a new family of people that would relate to one another differently, that would be a model and an example for how people were always meant to relate to one another, how people were always meant to serve and love and be for the good of one another. So here's how Paul describes what it looks like when this good news is embraced and lived out in a community. He wrote this in one of his first letters to the Galatians. He said, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
In other words, uh, the, the divisions and, and the walls that tear people apart and that go up between people because of our sin, gender divisions, socioeconomic divisions, and race and ethnic divisions, those do not exist in Jesus. They don't divide us in Jesus. Now, Paul isn't saying that these divisions just magically go away. He's not saying if you're a male or a female, you're not that anymore if you're in Jesus. He's not saying if during that time, if you were a slave, that you just become magically free. And he's not saying to his uh, friends who are Jewish, ethnically Jewish, well, you're not Jewish anymore, or, or people that they labeled Gentiles, which just meant anyone who was not Jewish. He was simply saying that those barriers and those walls that divide us, they come crumbling down with the gospel, and that we enter into a new community and a new life and a new humanity, and we don't relate to one another in light of these walls or in light of these barriers. To be in Christ Jesus means to be working with him at the business of tearing down these walls, which for us means that racism It's contrary to the gospel, period. We don't need to add anything else to that statement. Racism, which builds up walls and produces inequities, it's simply contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to what a follower of Jesus believes. It's contrary to what it means to follow Jesus. And if that's true, then it means that it's not enough for you or for me. If we're followers of Jesus, it's not enough for us to simply not be a racist. We have to be anti-racists. It's not enough to just say, well, I'm not a racist. It's not enough to see pictures of white supremacists on TV and say, well, I'm not that, right? That's easy to say. We can all say that. No, if racism is contrary to the gospel, if it's contrary to what we believe, if it's contrary to who I am and who you are in Jesus, then we have to be against racism. We have to be standing against it. We have to be working against it. We have to be calling it out like the Old Testament prophets. We have to be challenging any walls or any policies or any ideas that are creating walls or creating inequities, especially racial inequities. And we can do this for a whole host of reasons. But the most important reason, if you're a follower of Jesus, is simply because it's contrary to everything we believe. It's contrary to who we are. When we choose to trust in Jesus and follow him in our lives and enter into his community and be a part of his community, it's a choice to also fight against racism. It's not enough to just say, well, I'm not a racist. We have to be anti-racists. Now, here's the problem that I want to talk about this morning. I don't think most of us really understand the nature of racism in America. And that means we don't really understand what racism is. We don't understand if you're white, as most of us are, we don't really understand the experience of black Americans. 
We do not understand what policies of oppression really are. And we do not understand how apathy supports policies of oppression. And in order to, 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 to address all of this lack of understanding, I think we need two things specifically. Number one, we need the black perspective. And, and I, I can't provide that for you this morning. But the second thing we need is we need the historical perspective. And I can help with that. I think we need to understand our history better. And so for the rest of today and for next week, I'm just going to provide a very concise Cliff Notes version of some of the most important aspects of our history that maybe you didn't know, that maybe you haven't thought of in light of current issues, that maybe you and I together need to revisit in order to better understand the nature of racism in America so that we can ultimately, as followers of Jesus, be anti-racist. And so I've simply titled this week and next week, this short series, Racism, History, and the Gospel. And I have a couple of quick caveats before we jump in. Um, Here's number one. Um, Some of you want answers. Uh, Some of you want to know what to do about racism. Some of you are, are ready to act right now. And, and in fact, you even want to know, what are we going to do as a church about this? And uh, let me just be honest, if that's your expectation, um, I'm going to ask you to revise it uh, today because that's really not my goal. Uh, today and next week, my goal is not to provide a whole bunch of answers and a whole bunch of action steps. Um, I will make a few suggestions, but I'm mainly going to focus not on what we should do, but on how we should think and how we should feel. And then I'm going to trust that together with the Holy Spirit, you'll figure out what to do with that and you'll go do something. And maybe what God calls you to do, you'll share that with some friends and maybe you'll share that with others. And maybe there will be groups of people in our community that God will move to go do some things. And that would be amazing. But I don't have an action plan that I'm going to present for our church right now. That's not really what these next two weeks are about. Here's the second caveat. Um, Some of you might be put off by the recent protests. You're just tired of it. You're over it. Um, You know, like I know, that most police officers are good people and that they're doing their best. Um, And you see the protests and they seem peaceful during the day and at night they often turn into rioting or or looting. And honestly, it disgusts you. And you might not say it that way out loud, but if you're honest, that's how you feel. And maybe it also feels like the media is whipping things up more than it should be. Maybe it feels like racism isn't as bad as they're making it out to be. And maybe you think that just because you're not a racist personally, why can't we just move on, right? Why are we dwelling on this? Why do we keep talking about this? And why are we now talking about it at church? And if there's any part of you that feels those things. I get it. I understand. And so I just want to ask you to be open, to be patient, and to be teachable. 
You see, I think one of the greatest signs of maturity in a follower of Jesus as he or she gets older is their willingness to be open and teachable. And if there's racism at any level in our neighborhoods or in our cities, it's not enough for us to just say, well, I'm not a racist. You and I have to be against racism. Even if you don't think it's a very widespread problem, it's inherent to who you are and who I am as a follower of Jesus. And the reality is, I think it is a widespread problem. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. (laughs) A few years ago in 2006, the great evangelist Billy Graham, who gave his life to preaching a gospel of personal salvation, he was asked this question, what do you think is the greatest social problem in the world today? And here was his answer. I've often said that in my view, Racism is the biggest social problem we face in the world today, and I still, and I believe it still is. So, if it's an issue, if it's more widespread than we, especially white people, often think, then today let's jump in and revisit a little bit of history so we can better understand the nature of racism in America. Now, what I want to do is walk you through uh, four different periods in American history, and uh, we're going to look at two today, and then we're going to come back and look at two next week. Um, And the first one today uh, is simple. It's what I've called modern American slavery. Um, Many of us know some of these basic facts. The first slaves were brought from the west coast of Africa to the Jamestown colony in Virginia in 1619. Over the next roughly 250 years, millions of slaves would be brought to North America, to the Caribbean, and to South America. So that by 1860, the dawn of the Civil War, there were about 4 million slaves in the United States. Most of them were in the South. Now, as I said, we all know these basic facts from history. This is not new. What most of us don't realize is the nature of modern American slavery. You see, slavery has existed in many forms for almost all of human history. There are countless mentions of slavery in ancient literature, even in the Bible, right? Slavery in general was not a new concept, but there were two traits of the kind of slavery that that the Europeans and then the Americans later promoted from about the 1500s to the 1800s, two traits that were new and unique and different. The first is that the kind of slavery practice in the U.S. is what historians call hereditary chattel slavery. And this is different from the kind of slavery that was practiced earlier in history. For the most part, the slavery that was practiced earlier in history was forced labor labor, or indentured servitude. Now, don't get me wrong. Forced labor was horrible. Forced labor often happened when one ethnic group conquered another ethnic group that they were at war with, and then they would take many of the people and they would force them into servitude or into bondage. But forced labor or indentured servitude was often temporary. It didn't last forever. People could often win their freedom or work off their freedom or buy their freedom, and they were still seen as people. But African slavery was different. It was hereditary chattel slavery. 
The word chattel means property. It means slaves were not even seen as people anymore. They were a piece of property that someone else owned. That's what chattel means. You are no longer a human. And it was hereditary. It lasted your entire life, and it was passed on to your children and your children's children. They would always be slaves. They would always be property. They would never be human. So stop and think about that for a second. What does that do to a group of people who for 250 years, really about 400 years over the whole course of the history of African slavery, what does that do to a group of people who are told and treated that they are not human for that long? And what does that do to the society who is treating that group of people as not human for 250 years? Look, we are still lamenting and grieving the consequences of the way the Germans treated the Jews as not human for 20 years. And it was horrific. Americans did it for 250 years. And it's estimated that 2 million slaves died just on the ships bringing them to the new world. Millions more died in slavery, never knowing freedom. And it's why some Jewish scholars call slavery the African Holocaust. We have to recognize that aspect of our history and of modern American slavery. Here's the second Unique trait of modern American slavery, it was based on racial ideas and categories. That was different. Europeans, first the Portuguese and then the Spanish and then the French and then the English and the Dutch and then the Americans, categorized all peoples of Africa. Peoples who are from diverse backgrounds, diverse tribes, diverse, diverse cultures, diverse regions and ethnicities. They categorize all of them into one race that was inferior and seen as worthy of enslavement. They called the race Negro. Negro in Spanish and Portuguese simply means black. It was a reference to the dark color of their skin. And they created this racial construct that put people of different backgrounds and ethnicities in one category. Never mind that people from all over Africa actually have varying skin pigments. They have varying physical features. They have varying ethnic backgrounds. In fact, did you know that there are ethnic groups in West Africa that have more in common with people from Western Europe than they do from Eastern Africa? Which highlights an important truth. Race It's a social construct. That simply means that the races that we know of, that we call black, Asian, Hispanic, white, those are just categories that were made up to group people together so that they could be treated differently. There is nothing biological that all black people have in common that white people don't have. There's nothing biological that all Hispanic people have in common that white people do not have. There's nothing biological or inherent that white people have that people of another race don't have. We all have the same DNA. Now, ethnicity is different. 
There's a difference between ethnicity and race. Ethnicity refers to your ancestral origins. And that's often tied to a geographic place. So my friend Antonio, many of you know Pastor Antonio, he's from San Pedro, Guatemala, and he's ethnically Mayan. Most of his ancestors are from the Mayan highlands of Guatemala. And so there are ethnic traits and ethnic traditions that have been passed down to him. And as some of you know, my other friend, Mambo. Mambo is ethnically Mexican. Most of his ancestors are from the Mexico City area of Mexico, although some of his ancestors are actually from France, which is where he gets his last name, De Leon. But Mambo and Antonio come from very different cultures, very different backgrounds, very different ethnicities. And yet somehow we have put them in one race, one racial category called Hispanic, even though the only thing that they have in common is that they both happen to speak Spanish. Because about 500 years ago, Spain conquered the geographical areas where their ancestors were from, and they imposed on those people the language of Spanish. But there are no inherent traits that that Mambo and that Antonio or that all people we call or label Hispanic have. Race is just a social construct. And the reason it was developed was to mark out one category of people as different, as inferior to another. And another category of people, white Europeans and then Americans, as superior over that other category. That's what Europeans did with people of African descent. When they labeled them as black people or Negroes, And if you read any of the literature from that time, they described that category of people as inherently less civilized, inherently less intelligent, inherently less moral, inherently more lazy, inherently more violent. And it was this racist idea that another group of people that we have categorized is inherently inferior to us. It was this racist idea that justified their reasons to go capture those people and make them slaves. And that really gets to the heart of what racism is. Let me give you this definition. Racism is when actions and policies based on racist ideas produce racial inequities. And so for hundreds of years, white people enslaved black people. They created the greatest racial inequity our world has ever seen through the policies and institutions of slavery. And it was all based on the racist idea that the category of whiteness is inherently above and superior to the category of blackness, which is the exact opposite of anything you read in the Bible. It's the exact opposite of what the prophets preached, of what Jesus taught, of what the apostle Paul wrote. Jesus came to destroy this idea. And if we are not with him in that, then we don't really understand the gospel. Now, you probably know our history from 1861 to 1865 The Civil War was fought. A small group of Northerners fought 
for the humanity and dignity of enslaved African Americans. Most did not. Actually, most in the North fought to end the spread of slavery, or they fought to challenge the economic and political power of the South, or they fought to hold the Union together when Southern states had seceded. They fought for many reasons, and slavery was at the center of all of them, but racial equality was not. Chattel slavery was harsh and unjust. That's what all Northerners believed. In fact, many Southerners believed that as well. We could all agree on that. What nobody questioned, what no one fought for, what almost no one except a small group challenged was the idea of racial superiority. Almost all white Americans at that time still believed the racist idea that those people are different and inferior to us. And so when the, slavery, when the Civil War ended, slavery ended with it. But racism, policies, based on racist ideas that produce racial inequities, racism was stronger than ever. So let me talk about another period in our history. It's a period I've called policies of segregation. It's a long period, so I'm just going to quickly highlight a few key developments. And the first key development that you need to be aware of is the establishment of black codes. So immediately following the Civil War, um, Southern states had to ratify the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery. And, And we just remembered Juneteenth, right, a couple of days ago when slaves in Texas first heard the news that they had actually been emancipated, been set free. But these same states, like Texas and all the other southern states, immediately began passing new laws called Black Codes. And these were laws designed to maintain white superiority and racial inequities in society. Black Codes included laws that prevented Black people from voting, that prevented Black people from owning land outside of the city limits, that prevented them from owning guns or dogs, In some states, black people couldn't hold office. They couldn't attend public schools. They couldn't travel without passes. They couldn't work in certain trades. They couldn't sit on a jury. They couldn't testify against a white person in a trial. And if they didn't find a job immediately, they were labeled a vagrant and put in prison. So that even when the institution of slavery ended, a new institution was put in its place, a new system, a new set of policies that maintained the racial inequities. And so what you see in the decades that follow the Civil War is that um, as America tries to heal its wounds and its divisions, and as it moves into a new era of expansion and wealth and new national identity, It was a national identity created for the benefit of one racial group at the expense of another. Now, there were some challenges to these black codes. The 14th Amendment was passed, which theoretically, you can go read it, gave black people equal protection under the law. But that wasn't the reality in the South, where 90% of African Americans still lived up until the year roughly 1900. And so African-Americans tried to challenge these new laws, these black codes, these policies that were treating them differently. And the most important challenge is a Supreme Court case that you need to know about. It's called Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. 
Homer Plessy was a man who lived in New Orleans. He was a French-speaking Creole. Seven of his great-grandparents were white. One of them was black. And so one day when he rode in a streetcar in New Orleans, he sat in the white streetcar and he was told that he had to move to the colored streetcar. Louisiana had recently passed a new law saying black people had to ride in separate streetcars from white people. And so he took the case to court. He challenged the law, but the law was upheld locally. It was upheld at the statewide level. And then it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where it was upheld by a vote of seven to one. And this is an incredibly important decision because the Supreme Court in this decision said that laws that separate the races, laws that give unequal opportunities to the races, laws that create inequities between the races were okay. Now, they asserted that it wasn't unequal. They said that making black people ride in a different car or go to a different school or live in a different neighborhood, it was all okay. It was separate but equal. But it wasn't equal. Separate is never equal. When two groups of people are treated differently according to race, which is a distinction that's not based in any sort of fact, is a classification that has no inherent meaning, what you have is not separate but equal. What you have is a caste system where one group is maintaining control and superiority and power over another. And this Supreme Court decision led to the establishment of a whole new set of laws that were passed in the years that followed without any opposition. They became known as Jim Crow laws. You've probably heard this term. These are laws that were passed between the, roughly the 1890s and the 1950s. And they didn't allow black Americans to vote. They didn't allow black Americans to attend the same schools as whites, to ride the same buses, to drink from the same fountains, to go to the same restaurants, to visit the same theaters, to live in the same neighborhoods. And it was all legal. And it got terrible for black Americans in the South. So much so that in the 1910s and 20s and 30s and 40s, millions of them left in what was called the Great Migration. They moved to cities like New York and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Chicago and St. Louis and Detroit and Milwaukee and Cleveland. And yes, even the booming Rocky Mountain city of Denver, Colorado. And when they got to these cities, trying to escape the oppression they were feeling in the South, what they learned is that white people in these cities didn't want them any more than the white people did in the South. <laughs> Let me show you a few photos from the city of Denver in the 1920s, where the largest and most influential political party was the Ku Klux Klan. This is Larimer Street in downtown Denver. There's another city of a massive gathering just between Denver and Golden. And if you think the Ku Klux Klan was primarily young men, it wasn't. Women 
kids and families. This is not the deep South. This is Denver, Colorado. You see, when black Americans arrived in all of these cities outside of the South, they were not welcomed as people seeking refuge from oppression. More often than not, they were treated no differently than they were in the deep South. And that's because white Americans, even in places like Denver, still believed the racist lie that black people were somehow different and therefore inferior. And as a result, in the 1940s and the 50s and the 60s, even places like Denver came up with new policies of segregation to create inequities for African-Americans. And that's where we'll pick this up next week. Before we move on from this time period, I want to mention one other development that took place in the early 1900s. And that's the lost cause ideology. You see, a generation removed from the Civil War, in about 1900, Southerners began to look back fondly on the lost cause of the Confederacy. The idea became that the Civil War wasn't really about slavery. It was about states' rights. In fact, it even became known as the War of Northern Aggression. Lost Cause ideology said that the men who fought for the Confederacy were brave and heroic, which is true. They were brave and heroic on the battlefield. But more significantly, Southerners thought that this made their cause right and just. And they believed that if only the South had won, wouldn't life be so much better, right? Because at the center of this romantic view of the Civil War was the holding on to the idea of white superiority, that whites were inherently better than blacks. And unless whites could continue to maintain their power and control over them, then the country would just go downhill. And this is important to mention because it was during this time, from about 1900 to 1920, that statues and monuments and memorials were erected all over the South. To commemorate Confederate soldiers who died bravely, yes. But also, if you read any of the speeches that were given at the opening ceremonies of these statues and monuments and memorials, they were erected to undergird racist policies that would continue to maintain racial inequities. And that's why all of these statues and monuments and memorials that dotted all of the towns where I grew up and that inherently are beautiful works of sculpture, that's why they all need to be removed. And will people overdo it in the process of removing them? Of course they will. Will black Americans often tear them down in in anger and disgust? Yes, they will. I would. Should we expect anything different? Look, if any of us visited Germany and there were statues to Nazis everywhere, there were statues to Eichmann and Goering and Goebbels and Adolf Hitler, wouldn't we think something is wrong, deeply wrong with this society? What would the prophets Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah say? What about King Josiah in the Old Testament who went around tearing down pagan statues and memorials and grinding them to dust in righteous anger? Listen, if you happen to be listening today 
and you're watching the riots and you're watching the protests and you're watching all of the statues get torn down. And I get it. It's hard, especially if you're from the South and you don't understand the anger and you don't understand the protesting and you don't understand why people keep saying all the time, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, and you're tired of it and you're just ready for all of it to go away. Then I would say, I think you still don't understand our history. The problem for me and for so many white Americans is we don't really understand our history and we don't really understand racism. We don't understand that racism has almost nothing to do with whether I'm personally nice or mean to a person of color. Racism is when actions and policies based on racist ideas produce racial inequities. And any historical survey will show you that racism is probably the greatest sin of our nation for hundreds of years and that racial inequities still exist in massive amounts today. So it's not enough for any of us to say, I'm not personally racist, right? We have to be anti-racists, which means we have to figure out what does it mean to support actions and policies that are based on anti-racist ideas, or I would say that are based on gospel ideas that in turn produce racial equities. Being a follower of Jesus demands nothing less. So what does that look like practically? Well, I don't know what it's going to be for you, but I don't think we can even begin to act until we fully understand the problem in light of history. And so I do have one assignment for you today. One assignment, and it's very simple. I want you to start reading a book. I'm going to give you seven options. I put them on the screen. Here's seven options. You can pick any of these. Most of them are written by Black Americans because I can fill you in on some of the history, but their voice and their perspective will be so much more significant. We'll put this list, you don't have to write all these down right now, we'll put this list in the chat box in a few minutes so you can write it down after service. Uh, I've also put together some discussion questions so you can reflect on, on this message. We do that with all of our messages and we'll post those questions with our podcast online this afternoon. And in those questions at the end, we'll include all of these resources. In fact, in that list of resources, I'll even make some great articles and some great films that you should watch available. Um, But that's not the assignment today. The assignment for you is to actually buy a book and read it. Because as great as some articles are and as great as some of the films are that you can watch right now, it's easy to engage those things for an hour or two and then move on. But reading is different. And you might not like to read. I didn't like to read as a kid. Uh, You might feel like you're a slow reader. I'm a slow reader. And that's okay. But reading something requires a level of attention and focus, and it takes time. It takes days, right? It takes time that facilitates immeasurably more reflection and engagement. So take this list. Pick any of these books. Order it on Amazon. You can download it if you've got a Kindle right now and start reading it in the next couple of hours. You can pick any of these books. The last book I put on there is a teen, uh, young adult fiction book. It's got explicit language, but it's great for young adults. But any of these books, 
I would recommend we'll get you started. And if you can't even afford to read or to buy one right now, just send me or send any of us an email and we'll pay for one and ship it to you. This is not a hard assignment. So would you be willing to do it?